This episode is brought to you with support from Lyft. Lyft is continuing its leadership in creating a cleaner, healthier, and more equitable future with a bold commitment to reach 100% electric vehicles used on the Lyft platform by 2030. The shift to EVs will create opportunities for drivers to lower costs and keep more of their earnings. Transportation currently accounts for the largest portion of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., and so Lyft is committed to leading the way to decarbonize its platform through vehicle electrification. Learn more at liftimpact.com slash electric. You know, we've got to get these electric utilities to stop being addicted to fossil fuels, to stop proposing massive amounts of new gas plants, and to stop being anti-democratic monopoly organizations. I mean, it should be a privilege to be the CEO of an electric utility. You should feel that you are serving the public interest, you know? And you shouldn't be out there only looking for your shareholders and raking in profits and keeping open dirty coal plants or proposing new gas plants. Money is moving out of fossil fuels. In the face of a mounting climate crisis, a growing number of financial institutions are reevaluating their relationships with coal, gas, and oil. But while the divestment movement is picking up speed, it isn't a one-way street. There's still lots of money flowing into fossil fuels through various public and private channels. At the same time, fossil fuel interests are spending heavily to protect their assets and future growth opportunities. In this episode, we speak to Professor Leah Stokes about her research on how fossil fuel companies and electric utilities are slowing the shift away from polluting resources. Welcome to Political Climate, a podcast presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. And this is the fourth episode in our mini-series called Ditched, on fossil fuels, money flows, and the greening of finance. I'm your host, Julia Piper, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. In this show, we're taking a little bit of a sidestep in this ditched series. We're going to focus less on divestment and the role of the financial sector in fighting climate change and more on fossil fuel interest spending to influence energy policy in its favor. As we discussed in previous episodes in the ditched series, the economics of climate change are starting to be factored into capital markets, investment decisions and core business practices. But governments still play a major role in the energy sector. Lawmakers and regulators often step in to support different energy resources when markets don't. Figuring out if and when government intervention is necessary and what that looks like is a complicated and highly politicized process. So why are we covering it here? Because there are all kinds of financial risks and implications surrounding these policy decisions. Before turning to my interview with Leah Stokes, energy policy expert and assistant professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, let's connect some of the dots. According to the International Energy Agency, government subsidies for the production and consumption of fossil fuels worldwide totaled half a billion U.S. dollars in 2019. Conservative estimates put U.S. direct subsidies to the fossil fuel industry at roughly $20 billion per year, with roughly 20% currently allocated to coal and 80% to natural gas and crude oil. 
The International Energy Agency, or IEA, and numerous other organizations and experts have said that the COVID-19 pandemic presents an opportunity to phase out government subsidies for fossil fuels and spend more on building and deploying cleaner energy resources. But policy in the U.S. at least hasn't gone in that direction, at least not yet. The tension today is around the scale of government support for these companies and the heavy spending on lobbying and influence campaigns to get that support. Meanwhile, there's uncertainty that public spending on fossil fuels translates to help for employees and ultimately the U.S. real economy. Just over 7,000 oil, gas, and petrochemical companies received between $3 and $7 billion in forgivable loans under the Paycheck Protection Program passed by Congress in March under the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, or CARES Act. That's according to an analysis of Small Business Administration data compiled for the Sierra Club. Fossil fuel companies have also benefited from a tax loophole in the CARES Act and several new Federal Reserve programs. We talked about the Federal Reserve last episode with Stephen Rothstein at Ceres and the tools that financial regulators have to mitigate climate risk. But recently, things seem to be going in the opposite direction. Oil industry lobbyists have pushed for changes at the Federal Reserve to let companies with large amounts of debt use the Fed's Main Street lending program and borrow to pay off existing loans, loans that were around before the pandemic. According to the Sierra Club, the American taxpayer is now a direct holder in over $315 million in fossil fuel company debt. So fossil fuel entities have long benefited from government subsidies. And now, amid COVID, they're receiving additional government funding, while government actions that specifically benefit clean energy have been small by comparison. This imbalance is not only evident in direct government spending. Despite the increased attention on fossil fuel divestment, global investment in oil and gas production and distribution totaled $756 billion last year, according to the IEA. E&E News reports that the world spent an additional $90 billion on coal mining and $130 billion on fossil fuel power generation. Investment in renewables and energy efficiency, by contrast, stood at $560 billion, or just over half of global investments in fossil fuels. Those figures will need to flip if the world is to reach net zero emissions, according to Sam Airy, a research analyst at UBS, the Swiss investment bank. The rising cost of capital for fossil fuel activities due to factors we discussed in previous ditched episodes could help drive this shift. More than 100 globally significant banks and insurers have already announced that they're divesting from coal mining and or coal-fired power plants. And research shows that capital flight from thermal coal is only accelerating. Those investment numbers I mentioned for coal, fossil fuel power generation, and renewables are important to highlight because they bring in another element of this discussion focused specifically on the power sector, on electricity, and the utilities that provide it. Like oil and gas companies, utilities are wrapped up in discussions on the future of fossil fuels, money flows, and the greening of finance, the things we're covering in this series. Climate and energy experts say that cleaning up the power sector is a critical step in the energy transition, so that when more buildings, cars, and industrial processes move away from oil and gas, there's a clean power grid ready for them to plug into. Clean up the grid and electrify everything, a phrase you may have heard. Several U.S. utilities have made big climate pledges in recent years. Utilities such as Dominion Energy, Southern Company, Duke Energy, and others have committed to achieving net-zero carbon emissions by 2050, and some even sooner. But the pace of change in the real world has been slow. 
Utilities are still spending heavily on fossil fuels. Recent study published in Nature Energy found that between 2001 and 2018, only about 10% of the 3,000 utilities studied prioritized renewable energy. This comes despite the fact that there's growing evidence that utilities across the U.S., just like other businesses, face enormous financial risks from climate change. The damage and liabilities that California utilities face from deadly wildfires, made worse by rising temperatures, is one prominent example. An example that was noted in a new landmark report on climate risk from the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. So in many ways, it's in utilities' self-interest to go low carbon. But according to Leah Stokes, utilities are slow rolling this shift, as she outlines in her new book, Short Circuiting Policy, Interest Groups and the Battle Over Clean Energy and Climate Policy in the United States. The kicker, according to Leah, is that the largest and most powerful U.S. utilities are making continued investments in fossil fuels with customer funds and may be able to pass on the risk of bad investments to these ratepayers. Investor-owned utilities, or IOUs, are private enterprises acting as public utilities. These utilities have monopolies on the territory they serve. At the same time, they're owned by shareholders who may not live in the area and are operated for a profit. Public utility commissions determine how much money the utility is allowed to invest and what the utility can invest in, as well as how much it can charge and what its profit margin can be. These commissions oversee utility actions on a day-to-day -day basis, but their work is also heavily influenced by state laws, like mandates to reach 100% clean energy, or laws authorizing new fees on customer electricity bills to keep certain utility assets up and operational, even if they're out of the money. Influencing this policymaking process is a powerful thing. As discussed, oil and gas companies may win extra dollars in a time of crisis, while utilities may get to keep their ailing power plants in operation. Exerting this kind of political influence is not necessarily illegal, but it can be unsavory. For instance, over the past 30 years, the world's five biggest oil companies have spent more than $3.6 billion on reputation-building advertisements to influence policymakers and investors. And that doesn't count their investments in public relations programs or their influence through trade associations and campaign donations. All of which amounts to a large sum for climate activists to try and compete with. Utilities also spend big to advance their business interests, often with ratepayer dollars, which watchdog organizations like the Energy and Policy Institute have been tracking. One of the most egregious examples of this recently took place in Ohio, where utility First Energy spent heavily to secure the passage of a bill that would bail out coal and nuclear power plants. Now, that bill is surrounded by controversy. In July, the FBI brought a federal racketeering case against now former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder and several of his associates for secretly using $60 million from First Energy to support the bill, HB6, that forced utility ratepayers to pay around $1 billion in subsidies for the utility's nuclear power plants and up to $450 million to shore up two old coal plants owned by a collective of large utilities. HB6 also dismantled mandates designed to move Ohio's clean energy landscape forward. A front group accused of running a slush fund used to steer the bill through the Ohio legislature, named Generation Now, also faces charges. The Ohio bribery scandal has increased scrutiny of how utilities use dark money groups to support their political agenda, the kind of scrutiny that oil and gas companies are also increasingly under. 
investors and shareholders are now calling for more transparency from these companies. As we discussed earlier in this series, public trust in big energy companies is being eroded, often as it relates to shoring up polluting assets and undermining clean ones. While First Energy maintains it did nothing illegal in the Ohio case, analysts have downgraded its stock, while utilities across the board are facing increased investor and shareholder pressure to improve their environmental, social, and governance practices. So, as I said at the outset, how money is being spent on policymaking has big implications for the financial sector. In the remainder of this episode, I delve further into the research on how fossil fuel interests are influencing energy policy with Leah Stokes, starting with the situation in Ohio. Leah and I recorded this interview in July, shortly after the corruption scandal came to light. I began the conversation by asking Leah what she made of the news. Well, let's just say my week did not go as planned, and neither did Larry Householder's week go as planned. He's the uh, Ohio Speaker of the House, and I knew that man's name for a reason. Um, When I was writing my book, Short-Circuiting Policy, I was following the Ohio case for many years. This is uh, a state that had a clean energy and energy efficiency law in place that was actually working very well. The energy efficiency law had saved people five billion dollars, a billion with a B. It was an extremely successful program. And yet, for some reason, people kept attacking it. And it was clear that the utilities were behind this. And the utility First Energy in particular had very close ties to the Trump administration. Uh, In fact, Larry Householder was flown to the inauguration of Donald Trump on a First Energy jet. So we knew that Larry Householder and First Energy were very close. um, And we knew that there was a lot of dark money being put into Ohio for this terrible bailout for First Energy. Um, And we just needed the FBI to uh, get us the smoking gun, so to speak. But um, for those paying attention, we knew what was going on. Do you know how the FBI got involved? Have you been following the reporting on that? What, What were the red flags here? Well, Larry Householder was the speaker previously in the early 2000s, and he actually stepped down um, after being investigated by the FBI uh, on similar kinds of issues, I believe money laundering in that case. Um, So, you know, he was not a very straight shooter back then, and he'd already been investigated by the FBI. So I think the FBI had their eye on him. They kind of had let that one get away. And um, when he was running for the speaker, it was a really controversial fight because he'd been so corrupt the previous time. And suddenly all the people who were going to vote for him for the role of speaker found themselves with very well-funded political campaigns when they were up for re-election or up for election in the first time. You know, that's really bizarre. You know, you'll see utilities or fossil fuel companies buying off a politician here or a politician there or maybe funding every single Republican in a given state. But to handpick people that are then going to vote for your preferred henchmen, I mean, that's kind of next level. So we knew that probably First Energy was involved and, and the FBI actually went and got all the details. And, and after the bailout was passed, um, the coal and nuclear bailout in HB6 last summer, last July, 
a bunch of people tried to overturn the decision because Ohio has a law where you can basically put things on the ballot initiative. And so uh, there was a signature collection effort and suddenly there were so many people going up to signature collectors and saying, hey, would you give me those signatures that you collected? I'll, I'll pay you for it. So bribing signature collectors. There were people collecting signatures who were getting physically assaulted, getting punched on the street. And there were all these ads saying that if you signed this petition, the Chinese government would get your information, which was completely bonkers and made up. And so people were wondering, like, where's all this money coming from? You know, who is behind this? And we knew there was an organization called Generation Now. But what we didn't know was that all the money that Generation Now had was from First Energy and First Energy Solutions. Um, and that there was a, you know, that Larry Householder was running that dark money organization, which was a, a 501c4, which is supposed to be an organization acting in the public interest. And it instead was funneling money towards, you know, beating up people trying to be democratic and just collect signatures and also funneling money towards Larry Householder's own pockets. I'm talking half a million dollars. He got $300,000 to help settle a legal lawsuit that he was in. He got $100,000 towards his Florida vacation home, which he was not paying his taxes on and had, you know, gotten into trouble with. And then he got another $97,000 for his own reelection campaign. So, you know, these people were personally enriched by this um, coal bailout and by this thwarting of democracy in Ohio. I think for a lot of people, I would I would guess anyway, this is a surprise. You know, your utility keeps your lights on and maybe they're not the people that you love the most in your ecosystem of service providers. But I don't know. Do you think the public is aware of the fact that this kind of uh, you know activity takes place? I think it's happening more and more that people are coming to realize how corrupt their public utilities are. I wrote a whole book about this called Short-Circuiting Policy, and uh, the scale is just unbelievable. Uh, in Arizona, people are really aware of what Arizona Public Service has been doing for the past mm, eight years. They put over $50 million into elections to handpick their own regulators that would give them really big rate hikes, huge profits, and undermine solar energy in that state. They also put um, a big chunk of that money, $40 million, into blocking a ballot initiative for a clean electricity goal that was extremely popular with the public. So, you know, people are starting to ask, how come you're using the money that I have to pay you? Because keep in mind, these are monopoly utilities. If you live in a part of Phoenix where Arizona Public Service is your provider, you don't get to choose who you're buying your electricity from. And if Arizona Public Service decides to spend profits that they're making on the backs of your electricity bill payments on blocking climate policy, you don't get to do anything about that. You know, the same if you live in Ohio and you're paying first energy and you don't want to be backing a massive corporate giveaway to a corporation for to keep coal plants opening well you don't get to choose because you have to pay your electricity bills to have your internet work to have your lights go on you know to have your healthcare uh technology work in your own home i mean electricity is a life-giving good it is an essential service and so how come these monopoly corporations get to use our money 
for these ends? You know, I remember when I started at Green Tech Media, which has covered a lot of these issues you're talking about over the years uh, as, as they broke. And of course, you've detailed it in your book. But over the last five years, say, I think the conversation has evolved from utility death spiral. That was because people thought the utility business model was just unsustainable given all the new technologies and service models that were coming out from the startup startup ecosystem. But here we are, and a lot of utilities are now kind of leaning into the clean energy transition. And a lot of startups are actually working with utilities, creating marketplaces for clean energy technologies, for instance, like here in Southern California. You can buy solar and batteries through Southern California Edison's website. So there's been an evolution. And yet you're talking about these other actions that these utilities are taking, which are totally at odds with this clean energy transition. So how do you square these things? Is it like, you know, smoke and mirrors with with what the utilities are doing? Or is it more that they just want to own this new market and they're worried about that utility death spiral? Uh, Arizona Public Service, for instance, has, you know, put a foot into deploying rooftop solar on its own. Mind you, it blocked third party providers from being able to do the same thing. Uh, So is it against climate action and climate solutions for these utilities? Or is it more about market share and being concerned about their own bottom lines? It's, of course, a complex issue. But my own view is that these electric utilities are not interested in the clean energy transition at the pace and scale that's necessary. Sure, Arizona Public Service will make a little bit of money by creating its own solar customer program. Um, that works for them. But are they going to deploy as fast as Sunrun would deploy that stuff? I don't think so. Because, you know, they still got some coal plants they got to deal with. They still have some natural gas plants they'd like to build. Unless there is a law on the books in a state that says, here's where we're going on clean energy by this year. I don't believe it. Arizona Public Service spent $40 million dollars blocking a ballot initiative to raise a clean energy standard to only 50%. We're not talking 100% here. And they fought it to the tune of $40 million. And then they want to turn around a year later when they've got a new CEO, who, by the way, Jeff Goldner, the new CEO of APS, he was a vice president when all this corrupt stuff happened. You know, he was at the table. There are emails that we can read of him directing this dark money campaign into the elections for their own regulator. So, you know, this is not a new turning of the guard. This is somebody who was deeply involved in this kind of corrupt behavior in Arizona. And so if they want to say, oh, wow, we've taken on this target. I'm sorry, that's a voluntary target. And I'll look at their plans that they file at the Arizona Corporation Commission for what they're going to build. And I'll tell you, you know what Arizona Public Services year after year that they'd like to build an enormous amount of new gas. So that doesn't square with taking the climate crisis seriously. There are perhaps a couple utilities that are really trying to do the right thing. And even they still have problems like Excel, for example. Excel is on the better side of things. You know, they've helped get a law in the books in Colorado with aggressive clean energy targets, but they're also doing some shady stuff with gas plants too. And so, you know, we've got to get these electric utilities to stop being addicted to fossil fuels, to stop proposing massive amounts of new gas plants and to stop being anti-democratic monopoly organizations. I mean, it should be a privilege to be the CEO of an electric utility. You should feel that you are serving the public interest, you know? And you shouldn't be 
out there only looking for your shareholders and raking in profits and keeping open dirty coal plants or proposing new gas plants. You should be thinking, hey, I'm in a privileged position to help people, to help clean up the air, to help people have electricity and essential service. And, you know, a lot of these CEOs aren't like that. And so, you know, I think that there's time for a reckoning for a lot of these corporate executives who are not really truly on the side of climate action and trying to move their corporations towards clean energy at the pace and scale that's necessary. So I wish I could be more optimistic. I mean, I am actually an optimistic person and I really, really want to solve the climate crisis and I really, really want to clean up our electricity system. But there are just not enough good utilities. Look at what's happening with Southern Company and, for example, Alabama Power. They are taking in massive excess profits, you know? There was a report a few weeks ago that they got a billion dollars in excess profits. And Southern Company and its subsidiary corporations maintains massive amounts of coal plants that are uneconomic today, meaning that if you were to build a wind plant today, it would actually be cheaper and of course cleaner to operate that wind plant than to keep those dirty coal plants open. And yet they keep those coal plants open because that is in their financial interest. And and that decision to keep coal plants open longer than is necessary, that is a decision that kills people. That's not rhetorical. It actually kills people, primarily black people, through air pollution. And of course, it exacerbates climate change. So, you know, these are companies making absolutely terrible decisions. And I think we have to start asking, is this okay? Should they be able to use ratepayer funds for political action? And I think the answer is no. If unions, according to that Supreme Court decision, cannot, you know, use money from their members for these political ends, how come electric utilities can do that? I mean, that makes zero sense to me. I don't get to choose if I want to give my money to SoCal Gas for their uh, lying front campaigns that are anti-climate change. I don't get to choose if I don't want to give money to um, SCE, Southern California Edison, my electricity provider. And no matter where you live in this country, um, in well, not no matter, but in the vast majority of places where you live in this country, you don't get to choose. And so I think that those corporations should be subject to regulation around what they are allowed to do with political spending, given that we are forced to pay them money. I mean, it's so interesting because in a way, it's kind of amazing that the energy transition has evolved as much as it has, given everything you just laid out in terms of the the money that's going in from people who oppose the transition. I guess that just speaks to how compelling it is among the masses, I would, I would guess. I mean, what do you point to in terms of the success that's been able to be achieved despite all this? Well, you know... I think that the public wants climate action. They don't want these dirty utilities continuing to do these things. And I think we are ripe for a reckoning with politicians that are taking money from electric utilities. There was a report out of Ohio uh, yesterday, a journalist who's looking at all the Democrats and Republicans that are taking money from First Energy. The governor, Mike DeWine, he takes money from First Energy. And he was quite slow to call for the repeal of HB6, this corrupt law. Larry Ophoff, who is in the Senate and controlling the Senate for the Republican Party in Ohio, he takes a lot of money from First Energy. And he has not, to my knowledge, yet called for the repeal of the corrupt coal bailout in Ohio. So how come our politicians 
are taking money from these corporations. I'll tell you one happy story. In Virginia, there was a campaign to stop having politicians take money from Dominion. Tom Perriello was very outspoken on that and it, it, it just caught fire and a lot of politicians stepped up and they said, I'm not gonna take money from that utility anymore. And when the legislature met in the next session, they were finally able to get a clean electricity standard passed because they were no longer in the pocket of the electric utility. So I think we need people across this country to be calling their politicians and saying, how come you're taking money from Arizona Public Service? How come you're taking money from First Energy? Hey, why do you take money from SoCal Gas? Because if we have our politicians taking money from these utilities, we have seen as clear as day in the case of Ohio, how deep the corruption can go. But let me assure you, this is not just Ohio. In Illinois, just last week, Exelon's company ComEd agreed to pay a $200 million fine because of their relationship, probably with the speaker, Speaker Madigan, and the governor has called on him to resign. Um, and that was just last week. You know, this week we've got the oversight office in California trying to get SoCal Gas to open up their books because of, I believe, the, was it $38 million that they have spent of customer money on an anti-climate campaign? And that's not supposed to be allowed in California. So politicians got to stop taking money from electric utilities. And, you know, I think the public supports that. And so maybe we'll start to see a campaign like we've seen with a no fossil fuel money pledge, a no utilities money pledge to get politicians to start listening to what the public wants and stop listening to what these corrupt electric utilities want. We're talking primarily about utilities today, but there's already been a lot of pressure on oil and gas companies to disclose their spending uh, to both increase their green energy credentials, uh, whether or not that's actually true, and to disclose spending around efforts to undermine climate science and clean energy legislation. But amid all of that, we're seeing how many American oil and gas companies are actually lobbying for and ultimately receiving billions of dollars in government support during the COVID-19 pandemic, with little oversight on how these dollars are being spent. So when you see that branching out from just utilities to the fossil fuel industry writ large, you know, what does that make you think? Look, we're up against a lot with the Trump administration, um, and it's a very cozy relationship between uh, people like the Secretary of Energy, Dan Brulette, uh, the Treasury Secretary uh, Mnuchin, and the fossil fuel industry. I mean, these people have ties to the industry. They make statements about how they need to specifically help out the industry. For example, Energy Secretary Dan Brulette said in April that we would need to get lending closer to 200 or 250 million to specifically help the fossil fuel sector. And he said that after he'd met with them, with representatives of the industry behind closed doors. And let's be real, the Fed is supposed to be an independent agency. It's supposed to be lending money to companies that are not doing well because of the pandemic. That's what this was designed as. And instead, it's clear that a lot of money, as you ex explained, Julia, is going to fossil fuel companies for debt that they already had before the pandemic began. Because a lot of companies in the fossil fuel sector were not doing well before this pandemic began. They took on a lot of debt, they were in bad financial shape. And unfortunately, um, parts of the CARES Act it seems like, are being used to prop up 
these fossil fuel companies, and it has nothing to do with the pandemic. It has nothing to do with keeping people employed through a real, honest paycheck protection program. And that's so frustrating because from my view, these kinds of bailouts to the fossil fuel sector with zero transparency. I mean, Mnuchin has literally said that he won't even tell us where the money is going. I mean, we don't even know how much money is going to the fossil fuel industry. It's so disturbing. Um, And the problem with these bailouts is that it's like lighting a pile of money on fire. That money does not get into the economy. It doesn't keep people employed. It just pays down existing debt for companies that might eventually just go bankrupt. That money disappears. We see way too many blank checks being handed out to fossil fuel companies and electric utilities. With this Ohio scandal this week, you know, that law that was passed, which was a bailout for coal and nuclear, uh, the way it was structured was that the electric utility First Energy did not ever have to provide any evidence about how they would use that money, that bailout money. And so it became pretty clear that they were using part of it to keep a coal plant open that they had been planning to shutter. And the same thing is happening right now with this money going to fossil fuel companies. There are no strings attached. They are blank checks. And it's clear that they shouldn't even really be eligible for this funding because it's not supposed to be for debts that were incurred before the pandemic. It's not supposed to be for companies that were already in bad shape. It's supposed to be for companies that were doing good work, that were keeping people employed, and then by no fault of their own, a global pandemic came along and now they're struggling to pay their, you know, employees' salaries. That was the point of this money. And so I do think that we have to be thinking if we're going to be giving money to fossil fuel companies or electric utilities, where is that money going? We need to have oversight. For example, When these companies go through bankruptcy, one of the first things they often end up doing is they shed their union contracts. They never pay out the pensions to the people who worked for them for a long time. And that's just not right. There needs to be uh, rules about reducing your emissions treating your employees right, honoring your contracts with unions if you're going to actually get money from the government. And that's not how it works right now. When you see companies with major fossil fuel interests committing to net zero emissions targets and to spend more on clean energy, what do you think? Do you do you take that as an honest effort to address the climate crisis? Yeah, I mean, my fear is that some of these fossil fuel companies like Exxon or Chevron or Occidental Petroleum, they talk a lot about, oh, we're going to do the transition, etc. But if you actually look at what they're proposing, it's not a plan to tackle the climate crisis. It's minor things that would help at the margin. Things like methane reduction, uh, methane leakage reduction, energy efficiency in the supply chain. Um, But those are not things that will actually get us to net zero carbon emissions by 2050, which is the challenge that we have before us. So I need real talk from fossil fuel companies like Exxon, Chevron, Oxy. I need them to put their money where their mouth is, not just say, oh yeah, we're doing the transition. And there's a whole thing about how maybe Exxon has spent more money advertising its biofuels program than actually investing in its biofuels program. So these companies, if they 
want to be energy companies in the future need to start changing the way they're investing internally and stop putting so much money into the dirty infrastructure that they own and start putting real money on the table for clean energy innovation and deployment. Yeah. And policy could really accelerate that transition if, you know, there was appetite. But it seems like at the federal level, at least here in the U.S., we're at a gridlock with, you know, noticeably less engagement on the Republican side. Yeah, and we should ask why that is. And I'll tell you, that is exactly what I asked in my book, Short-Circuiting Policy. And if you go back a little more than a decade to, let's say, 2006, 7, 8, believe it or not, there were as many Republicans in the public and independents as Democrats who supported research and development funding for renewables, who supported more clean energy being built, who supported even climate change. This was actually not a partisan issue just a little more than a decade ago. We have to ask ourselves what happened. And, you know, I'll tell you, I understand what happened based on my research. What happened was the fossil fuel industry and electric utilities poured an enormous amount of money into politics, often in blatantly corrupt ways, as we have just seen in Ohio or as we've seen in Arizona uh, or in Illinois. I mean, they are literally buying off politicians, in some cases with personal favors, like we've seen in Ohio. Um, And that is where the problem comes from. You know, we had people like Bob Inglis or John McCain. And even today, I think there are some Republicans, people always say, oh, there's some Republicans in the Senate or in the House who are, you know, got their tail between their legs. They won't say it publicly, but they do believe in climate change. But here's the fact, they are very fearful of getting primaried by a fossil fuel uh, industry funded campaign. That's what Coke Industries has been doing to people. at the state level, as well as federally, uh, you know, there's tons of money that will be available to challenge a Republican that is willing to step offside on climate change. And that is just not acceptable. These fossil fuel companies and electric utilities, especially the electric utilities who just have a privilege as a monopoly company to take money from ratepayers, they should not be allowed to be using that money for these political ends that are corrupting our political system. And I think we actually have to start asking very hard questions about the money in politics from fossil fuel companies and electric utilities and how it's unfortunately twisting the Republican party away from a party of conservation and protection towards um, a really corrupt uh, institution. And uh, I think there's going to be a reckoning on that in 2021. I want to just end by asking what it's like for you in this space. Does it ever feel um, difficult or tricky to be in between these big, powerful entities and sort of calling them out on their behavior? Um, You know, what is it like to be kind of, you know, sounding the alarm on this? I feel a lot of responsibility. Um, you know, a lot of people don't pay attention to electric utilities. They don't They don't know about them or public utility commissions. And we're supposed to have states have intervener compensation programs, which is a policy to fund advocates to show up at the public utility commission and speak in the public interest. And most states have never implemented that. The federal Um, Energy Regulatory Commission, which is like our federal energy regulator, they've never implemented it, even though they have the jurisdiction to do it. And so, you know, we don't have people speaking for the voices of everyday people who maybe just 
don't have time to pay attention to this wonky stuff. And so we've allowed it to get really corrupt. And so I just feel responsible to, because I have the privilege to have been educated at MIT and have learned so much about the electricity system from really brilliant professors there, um, you know, I feel that I have the knowledge and that I have a platform and I have a voice. And so I feel responsible to speak up for um, everyday people who are getting the short end of the stick from their electric utilities um, and who, you know, may not be following this corruption uh, that closely, but are paying for it every month. I mean, look at that bailout in Ohio. That jacked up people's electricity bills. That cost people in Ohio billions of dollars before you even take into consideration the air pollution that it increased, you know, and all the costs of people having to go to the doctor or getting asthma attacks. And there's lots of fantastic research about that um, that show the literal cost from the air pollution. Um, so, you know, I just, I feel responsible. I feel like it's my job to speak up for the little guy, to speak up for the rate payer who's struggling to pay their energy bill. Um, you know, some weeks are tiring and uh, you spend all day talking to journalists and trying to break through, but um, it's a privilege to get to speak up for everyday people and to try to hold big corporations accountable for corruption. I mean, I just feel like uh, that's a privilege and I'm happy to do it. Do you think this is a turning point? Maybe. I don't know. Will Congress open up some investigations into these corrupt companies? They should. Will they? I don't know. Will public utility commissions start to say, hey, we are not allowing political spending. You can't get rate recovery on that. Will we start to see more places do what California has done, where they've got an independent oversight office that looks into what utilities are doing with their money in a more aggressive way? <laughs> Which, I mean comes up against its own challenges. That oversight uh, body has been trying to get SoCalGas to do it and has been trying to fine them for not doing it. And the last time they tried to do that, the um, Public Utilities Commission didn't allow them to collect the fines. So, you know, it's it's hard to get these utilities to be regulated properly. Um, but we need more institutions to do it. We need intervener compensation programs in every single state so that there is money for people to show up at the commission and advocate for lower rates for people and advocate in the public interest for lower air pollution. We need, um, you know, more oversight institutions, not just in a state like California, but all across this country. We need Congress to step up and do more oversight. We need our public utility commissions to do more oversight. Um, and hey, the FBI, they stepped up this week and good for them. You know, I, I'm impressed with what they've done. And the FBI also investigated in Arizona with Arizona Public Service and um, Gary Pierce there. So, you know, they, they pull their weight on occasion too. Um, so, you know, but I think we gotta, we, we, we are due for a reckoning with the scale of this problem. And, and if we believe, as I do, that electricity is the first linchpin to solving the climate crisis, and I believe that, then we've got to get these electric utilities on the right side of the law, on the right side of climate action. They need to start acting in the public interest and taking their responsibility as a monopoly utility. That's a privilege. They need to start taking that seriously. So I'd love it if we got a few more utilities uh, on the right side of the, the ledger. So far, we're just looking at a lot of corruption and delay, but maybe we'll start to see that shift. Maybe hindsight will be the year 2020, the year that things changed. <laughs> 
Well, in the meantime, for anyone who hasn't yet, I hope you pick up a copy of Leah's book, Short Circuiting Policy. You can get all the details on everything she just described, the ins and outs. Leah, thank you so much for taking the time to break all this down with me today. It's super timely and clearly not over yet. Thank you so much. And yeah, your listeners, you got some homework. Figure out if your politicians are taking money from utilities and uh, give them a phone call if you find out that they are and let them know that you don't like it. (laughs) Between trying to feed your children, keep your sanity, also call your legislators about the utility money. That's the other thing on your to-do list. (laughs) Leah, thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Well, we have come to the end of another episode in our Ditched mini-series. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Ditched, in addition to our regular Thursday episodes that air on the Political Climate Podcast feed. Speaking of that feed, you can subscribe wherever you get podcasts. We are on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn. We're also on Twitter at Polly, P-O-L-I underscore climate. Tweet at us there. And we're on Instagram with the same handle. That's it. Thanks again. Until soon.